0: Morning, Westridge. Morning. How are y'all doing? Good. Good. Well, you might have noticed that the title is "When You Have to Move," and just a couple things about that before we get started. One is the message is not about Jay Cutler, <laughs> though after today, it very well may be. Um, secondly, I got to warn you that I'm I'm going to close this message with a very climactic, um, persuading, emotional way by reading you a genealogy from the Old Testament, but it's going to be okay, you're going to like it, okay, just some hard to pronounce names, so sometimes we have to journey a little farther down the road of life than we would prefer, there are times when we would just as soon stay in one place, and then for whatever reason, in whatever way, life's circumstances force us to keep moving, even though we would rather complacently stay in just one place? Do I have to tell you that there are times in life that we have to call unfortunate, unforeseeable, unplanned circumstances? Have those visited any of you before? Three or four of you and the rest of your liars. Yeah. <laughs> Those kinds of things can force us to move. Maybe it's a job loss. Maybe it's a loss of health. Maybe it's a divorce, a death, a financial reversal, a relationship rupture, a closed door of some kind. And here we are with new choices we'd rather not make, but they will be made one way or another, either for us or by us. And there's almost always a bit of fear and apprehension that comes with any move, even if it's otherwise positive. Staying with the familiar even though it's far from perfect, is oftentimes preferred to venturing into the unknown. In most cases, we can't tell the result of a decision before it's made. And so last week, remember last week, travel tips? How many of you were here last week? Yep. Okay. Uh, my wife and Greg. Where long was it? Wait, Raise your hands. <laughs> last week, we said it's the quality and kind of decisions we make that play a big role in determining whether or not We enjoy the ride as we drive down the road of life. And so we talked about Noah, and we said that we need to respond in a timely way with obedient faith to what you know God is calling you to do. This week, in a much lesser known book, somewhat obscure book actually, we'll learn from Ruth this important travel tip. Making good decisions means allowing God to turn bad moves into a hopeful future. Because don't forget, in all decisions we know that without faith it's impossible to please God. So, let's review the life of Ruth. Because I'm guessing some of you didn't read it this week. Would that be right? I'm guessing some of you didn't even know there was an Old Testament book called Ruth. Would that be right as well? Here we go. Um, The historical setting is approximately the same as your Old Testament book Judges. You may recall that the book of Judges ends with a reference to the social chaos, personal misery that was coming as a result of a lack of authority in that culture. And the cultural chaos is summed up in this famous verse in the book of Judges. It says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now that could be written in America in 2015. From that broad canvas, we focus in on a specific family and their fortunes. So here's what I've got for you this morning. I've got three moves. I've got three questions. And then we're going to vote. If you want me to go on, I've got three bonus moves. Okay? So be thinking which way you want to go on that. Okay? Here's move number one. There was a famine in the land that forced Elimelech. I told you they're hard to pronounce names in this Old Testament book. Elimelech and his wife Naomi, and their two eligible, handsome sons, to make a move. Unfortunate, unforeseeable, unplanned. Forced to move because of a famine. Who wants that in their life? And so Elimelech takes his family, he leaves Bethlehem, and he moves to Moab. And we see our first example of God turning a bad move into a hopeful future. The boys meet and marry two wonderful Moabite women. And as we all know, we wish they could all be Moabite women. (laughs) Move number two. For a while all was well, until one day tragedy struck. Elimelech and his sons, they have to move again, this time to their eternal reward. Unfortunate, unforeseeable, unplanned, they die. So here's the new snapshot. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law Orpah, not Oprah, but Orpah, and Ruth, they're in a foreign land with no husbands. Got the picture so far? Move three. Naomi decides to move back to her hometown, Bethlehem. And she tells her daughters-in-law to go back to their home country in hopes that they would find new husbands for themselves. And begin rebuilding their lives. And after many tears... Orpah, not Oprah. Oprah. She's a bright and sensible girl. And she sees the wisdom of what Naomi is saying. Her best chance to recover was in her home country. If she goes to Bethlehem, she'll be reduced to begging. And so she kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, and she slowly retraces her steps. But we've got one other daughter-in-law, right? Her name is Ruth. She decides... ...to make a risky move of her own. She decides to stay with her mother-in-law. Now you have to understand in this culture... ...the wife did not have the right of inheritance. Her security rested with her husband. She had few rights of her own. That's why in the Bible widows are often mentioned... ...alongside orphans and strangers... ...as needing special care and protection. The one lasting hope for some recovery of social status... ...was for the widow of marriageable age... To get remarried. And so Naomi knows this. And she pushes Ruth away in a you-don't-know-what's-good-for-you-Ruth way. Go do what's best for you. you got no life here. Which in turn gives rise to Ruth's bold statement of commitment. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, uh, I'll go. And where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from me. How's that for a daughter-in-law statement? Ruth's determination sinks in, and Naomi continues on her journey back to Bethlehem. When she left years earlier, it was with a husband and two sons. Now as she returns back to her hometown, it's but with one daughter-in-law. And when she gets back to Bethlehem, she meets the women that she knew then and grew up with. And she says to them, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. There are more than a few contemporary questions that arise from this story about unfortunate, unforeseen, unplanned moves in our lives. I'm going to highlight just three questions. Question number one comes from Naomi. What can I do when I feel like I'm running on empty? Naomi's life is one disaster after another. She's homeless. She's without family support. She has no hope of inheritance. And so the natural question that comes to my mind, I don't know about you, where's God in all this? Sometimes. Our unfortunate, unforeseen, unplanned moves leave us in a place of emptiness just like it did Naomi. What can I do when I come to this dark side of my faith? Well, here's one novel idea. You can be honest with God. What's the surest way to destroy a deep relationship of trust and affection? Well, here's one good way. Conceal larger and larger portions of my emotional life from the other person because the deception creates the distance. The same thing is true in your faith journey with God. What's impressive about Naomi's pain and subsequent anger is her truthfulness before God. And with God, there's no hiding her feelings, no pretense that anger is not there, no sweeping it under the rug. She says, "The Lord has made my life bitter." Some Christian Uh, in some Christian circles, seems like they forbid the privilege of mourning. And the reality is this side of heaven, there will be times when we weep and lament before our sorrow is turned to joy. Sorrow's real, and hypocrisy of any kind is not Christian. When we mourn, we're reminded of what we too easily forget in this consumer culture advocating instant gratification all the time we forget that our lives are ultimately very fragile and very transient the church should be the place you come to hear that where else are you going to hear that message in consumer culture a casino they going to tell you that yeah come play our slots before you die because you're going to die anyway it's going to be pretty meaningless shopping mall yeah come shop till you drop no we mean really shop till you drop TV ads where they're going to try to sell you a product but tell you before they do. Your life is transient and fragile. So you might want to think of some other things before you engage in buying this product. The confession of the fragile nature of our existence and our utter dependence upon God opens up new pathways to hopeful futures. And so here we are back to Naomi, humbly bowing beneath the hand of God from whom she feels afflicted and trusts despite every appearance that it is the hand of her loving father. So as Naomi's struggling with her faith, Ruth confronts a difficult choice of her own, and she presents us with question number two. Question number two is, which route do I take? For Ruth, the logical choice would have been the route that her sister-in-law took. Go back home to the familiar. The odds are better there. Surprisingly, Ruth takes the road less traveled whatever emotional state she may have been in, she makes the decision based on a commitment to another person's well-being, not convenience, not personal pleasure. Now, it's important to see what enables us to make this kind of principle-based decision. These kinds of decisions cannot be made apart from our faith in a God who will honor and eventually reward our sacrifices. Faith is trusting God's assurance that in love, even the pain will have a meaning. The prophets would later write, the just shall live by faith. Increasingly, I'm aware that right decisions are not the result of a high IQ or cutting-edge technology. Right decisions are based on a right character and a faith in a God who makes all things right. Question number three. This is a question that you and me have. Because don't ever forget, I can read your minds. And the question is this. How can we fill up our tank with hope? Once in Bethlehem, Ruth finds herself working in a field. A pretty menial job. She has to do it to provide food for herself and Naomi. Because she's got no inheritance. She's got no future apart from marrying someone who can take care of her. And what to Ruth was sheer coincidence in an unplanned set of circumstances was really the outworking of God's gracious care. Because it's in that field that Ruth meets someone. She meets a man named Boaz. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. Another Old Testament word for you. Sometimes we meet our kinsman redeemer in a field of broken dreams. Because the kinsman redeemer is the responsible next of kin who acts to prevent property being lost to the family. But he was more than that. He illustrates uh, the emphasis in the Old Testament on the people of God as a community bound together as a result of their faith in God. Sometimes being the kinsman redeemer meant the payment of a ransom, a redemption price. In the case of Boaz, to act as kinsman-redeemer would have been very costly and, get this, he was under no obligation to do it. No law was going to make him do that. No one could force him to do that. It had to be made out of his own free will. Fast forward to the closing credits. Ruth and Boaz get married and have a son. But the story's not over. The final chapter of Ruth reads like this. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Yes, that David. But stay with me a little longer. I have to read you something that's probably not being read in very many churches this Sunday morning, but I warned you I was going to read you a genealogy list. Didn't I? You're, you were fairly warned, and you're still here Take it. So here it goes. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father, father, father of Ram. I'm already stumbling over this. Ram, the father of Abimadad. Abimadad, do do you. Abimadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Now, his mother was Rahab the prostitute. For extra points, you can read about her in Joshua chapter 2. In case you didn't get enough genealogy today. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. There. You've just been genealogized. So the story seems to end rather inconclusively with Jesse becoming the father of David. but That's the point. David's the point. David was the great king of the jews david was the link ultimately with jesus and if we look carefully we will find the secret of hope being shown to us in this obscure little old testament book called ruth it's how we fill our tank up with hope the secret of hope has to do with these other people in this list, because with the, without these other people, there would have been no David. They were all essential links in the chain. I might not be a David, but I can be one of those other people. And it's up to us to keep things going because who knows which generation, which church, which person will be the one to make the big difference, the game changer. David came nine generations after Ram. Hope moves in when we realize that our main task is to ensure the continuity of the faith. We need hope for the future to make sense of the present. The Apostle Paul reminds us of the same truth when he tells Timothy, entrust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. It's great if I get in on something special and see the end result of my work in this life, but my hope is not dependent upon that. My hope can't be dependent upon that. That's too thin. My hope is not dependent upon all the right moves in life, working out the way I want them to work out. My hope is ultimately in my kinsman redeemer. Someone who's related to me. Someone who cares about me. Someone who has the... Capacity to pay the price, someone who's not acting under compulsion. To buy me back when life is at its uttermost despair. My hope is ultimately in my Savior. Now, some of you may be beginning new works, that no one will call significant for nine generations. The only character that doesn't move in our story is God. And he doesn't move in your story either. The woman who returned to Bethlehem running on empty, remember her? She's got a new perspective. Ruth has remarried. She has a son named Obed, who will be in the lineage of another baby born some 1,000 years later in the same little town of Bethlehem. That baby would come to set his people free. And little did Ruth know as she followed Naomi back home, that she would be the great-grandmother of David, king of the Jews. That's how God's faithfulness is measured. Not in weeks or months, much less a 24-hour news cycle. It's measured in generations. Now, I've had three moves and three questions for you. I've got three more moves... All those in favor wanting to hear those? Aye. aye. Opposed? same sign? It's anonymous. Okay. Now you realize this means my going over my self-imposed 20-minute limit, which makes me kind of nervous. So these are bonus points for you today. The story is more than, a little, uh, more than a little personal for me as I embark on a career change to a new industry. Now let me just clarify, we're not, we, we're not moving from downtown Chicago. I'm just taking a new job that's not going to permit me to be here as consistently as I have the last seven or eight years. So that means we hope to come back out and visit and maybe even be asked to be a guest speaker again. And I hope there's enough time goes by so I can use this same sermon. I don't have to write a new one and get a little double duty out of it, you know. So as I'm embarking on this new move for myself... I wanted to bolster my confidence. So I started thinking about past moves and looking for God's faithfulness in them. So here's three more moves. Move number one. Between my wife's sophomore and junior year in high school, her father moved the family from the booming, glittering metropolis of Joplin, Missouri to a small country school district in Kansas, about 20 minutes away. My wife, Risa, dead set against it. Her twin sister, Lisa, dead set against it. Did not want to move out into the country and fraternize with these country bumpkins. And yet, it was in this backwater setting that she met this dazzling young urbanite. (laughs) And the rest is history. Move number two. It was the year 2002 when I moved my family with, with my two then-teenage daughters from Southern California back to the booming metropolis of Joplin, Missouri, where I'd taken a job with my alma mater. Now, use your imagination to picture what two California girls thought about that move. <laughs> there were some unhappy days and nights that followed us across the desert to Southwest Missouri. So our oldest daughter is in Joplin, she's going to college, she's working at the Estee Lauder counter at Macy's, and a co-worker says to her, you should meet my brother-in-law. I think you'd like him. She did. Today they're celebrating nine years of married life in Joplin. So they're married, and they've set up home, and one of my... New son in law's friends come over one day and he's looking around the house and he picks this picture up in a frame and it happens to be my youngest daughter. He says, Who's this? Tara says, That's my little sister. He says, That's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen and I'm going to marry her. Five years of married life today. And by the way, they're living in Southeast Kansas, just miles from where Risa reluctantly moved forty years ago and met me. Reading Ruth caused me to think again, though, about those moves. There's one more. I got to thinking those moves might not have just been for Risa, Tara, and Tiffany, or or our two wonderful son in laws, who we love like our own. Recently I'm thinking those moves might have been for Nivea whose name is heaven spelled backwards. Although her 10 years of life have been anything but heaven, she's spent almost her entire life in one foster care home after another. She's bounced from one place to another place through no fault of her own in the foster care system of the state of Kansas. But today, she's got a forever family of her own. And our daughter-in-law and son-in-law our daughter and son- son-in-law have a new daughter, and we have a new granddaughter. So where's she going to move? What's she going to do? I don't know. The story continues. But here's what I do know. She wouldn't be in this loving family without a few moves, a few people were dead set against. there will be unfortunate, unforeseeable, unplanned events in our life. Mourn if you must. Be honest with God. He can take it. Make your decisions based on character and trust. But above all, let hope move in. And here's why. Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David the father of mary to whom was born jesus my kinsman redeemer the one who can take all my bad moves and turn them into a hopeful future